When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with AOC and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. That's where we'll email you our fundamentals toolkit. covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, dating, attraction, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. And we've got our live programs running every single week here in L.A. In fact, we've got people from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you're committed to yourself. We're sold out a couple months in advance, actually about three, four months in advance. So if you're thinking about it, get in touch now by phone or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with my friend Alex Coots. He's been on the show before. You've heard it a bunch. We're going to talk about getting hired at a startup. This is a pretty unique episode. Even if you're not thinking about getting hired at a tech startup, it might be interesting for you. If not, move along. But we're going to talk about what startups are, first of all, why they're unique, why this atmosphere of high ambiguity suits certain people and doesn't suit most of us, how to get into certain roles and what those roles might be that are available in startups, some stories of successful startup hires that are highly unusual to say the least, and of course how to get meetings, ask for meetings, suggesting meeting times, all of that and more on this episode of The Art of Charm. Enjoy this one with Alex Kutz. A lot of people write in, they're like, I work for a small, or I run a small startup out of, you know, Dayton, Ohio. And I'm like, okay, cool, who is it? And it's them and their brother-in-law, and they're in a basement. But it's kind of not a startup because they're consultants, or it's not a startup because it's not, I mean, what is a startup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really tough thing to define, right? It's kind of like, you know, what what is a star really, right? right? Like, oh, no, well, startups are basically very young companies, right? Very young companies, and things are very mushy. There's a lot of things going on at any point. But in reality, they haven't really figured out what they want to be when they grow up. So it's kind of a combination of a lot of people that may or may not have a business plan with some type of idea for a product and a user, although they may not be fleshed out really yet. But they're in the early stages where things are moving very quickly and breaking very fast. So there's a couple of things that kind of define startups. One is limited resources, right? So a normal big company, there could be, you know, an HR department with a budget and like all these things and, you know, a sales department and a marketing bar. So a startup is normally like, you know, two or three guys or girls sitting in a room, eating burritos, throwing Hail Marys. So it's, it's limited resources is one of the big hallmarks of a startup. Uh, another is an environment of high ambiguity. So, you know, as a startup, you don't know what your product is going to be when you grow up. So a lot of startups are trying to find something called product market fit which is a term uh, coined a long time ago and very well explained by Mark Andreessen, who's a famous investor. So if you Google product market fit and Mark Andreessen, you can get a good definition of that. But basically what that means is that the product that the startup has built perfectly meets a need that's in the market and that people are willing to pay for that good or service, even if they don't. Facebook is free as an example, but people would start paying for it tomorrow if they charge millions and millions of people because they're addicted. Now, another better startup that's cheaper would probably come along and eat their lunch for them. But they've hit on a need that is so strong that people would pay for it. 
I'm trying to th- I'm trying to think if I would pay for Facebook, and the answer is yes, even though I don't like that answer. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like looking in the mirror. It's pretty painful. Yeah, it can be it can be rough. So startups are unique in that way. They're creating something unique that meets the market. Don't all companies do that? I feel like everyone right now is like, duh, I'm making something people want to buy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so every startup, especially software startups, are built on some underlying assumption about human behavior. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that they have something that they understand about the way that people behave or the things that they want that's different than what's in the market. Now, there are a lot of companies that build solutions for things that already exist and, quite frankly, never find a foothold in the market because they don't do what's already been done better than it's being done currently. Mm -hmm. But they're always trying, right? They're looking for that slightly different perspective. And some are extremely uh, disruptive, right? So uh, there's tons of companies doing things with, you know, blood analysis and body hacking and all kinds of things that have never been done before, which are awesome. You and I were just talking about a toilet that analyzes your poop and tells you if you're eating enough asparagus. Yeah, we were talking about what we wanted to get each other for Christmas, and that was yeah. top of the list for <laughs> both of us. From, yeah, I'm in on poop analysis toilets. <laughs> yeah. So another thing that uh, is is definitely a definition, a definitional element of a startup relative to other bigger companies is that every situation in the startup demands a very high level of ownership for the things that need to happen. So What does mean, that mean? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good question. So, you know, in a corporation, if I don't do my job, there's likelihood that somebody else may do it. Right. Which means that there's some element of it that I just don't really own because eventually someone will do this or it will get done in a startup. If a specific task needs to be done, you've got to do it or no one's going to do it because there's nobody else. There may only be three, four people in the company, 10, 12 people, whatever. So you have to have this very high degree of ownership. In addition, startups are passion plays for a lot of people. Typically, startups don't pay as well as large companies. And even if you work at a startup and even if the startup has an exit like an IPO or gets sold or something like that, a lot of those people end up making less than they would if they went to a very big company and worked for a period of time. So a lot of people that choose the startup route are very, very passionate what they're doing and as a result want to own the outputs and the inputs of everything. So they'll want to design, they'll want to implement, build, be part of it. So those are the people that are like, look, this, and, and you see this in movies and you, well, I see it at restaurants in Silicon Valley where people are like, look, this is changing the way that people pay for things because they want to pay in bodily fluids instead of money or whatever the newest thing is. And people are like, maybe. And they're like, you don't understand. It's like nobody really goes to work in Detroit, for example, where I grew up and goes, you don't understand this. This car is so much better than the other model of car by the other competing auto company. That's exactly the same type in the same niche. Nobody's really doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's part of startup culture and it's specifically endemic to, to Silicon Valley, which is like, Everybody out here is a zealot, right? They really believe that what they're doing is going to change the world. Like we've been eating bananas like monsters for the past 250 years. Now there's a better way to do it. And actually one of the best pages ever on Amazon is this this product that slices bananas. And if you look at the reviews of it, like that type of tone is like the best possible way to describe like what it feels like to be in a startup, which is like the stupid little plastic thing that slices bananas like once at a time, just like six little slices. Like a slap chop for bananas. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically and only for bananas. Right. And people are like, oh my God, like, I don't know what I've been doing with my life until this thing came around. Right. It's, it's literally changed everything. <laughs> There's the world before and after the banana slice. Have you seen the Bic Pen review page on Amazon it's where the there's like 18,000 and it's like, my life was incomplete. Sure, I have three kids, but I had never handled one of these babies before. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but you have to have that in a startup. You have to really believe because it's a very tough thing. I mean, I've worked in startups my entire career, and there are months and months and months on hand where I will work 100 hours a week. I mean, I didn't take a vacation for three and a half years. Yeah. And I mean, like, working on weekends every day, 90, 100-hour weeks, because that's what it took to get the company to where it needed to be. And unless you have that type of dedication, unless that's something that you want, it's going to be a tough place to be. But, you know, it's rewarding on the other side of it because you do really get to build something and see it evolve every day as a direct result of the things you've done, which is amazing and hard to find. That is cool. I'd like to balance that with something that I've talked about here and there on the show, which is the post office days when you wake up in the morning and you don't want to do anything with your startup and you just want to go get a job at the post office because <laughs> because you would rather it's that or you you just like crawl back into bed and pretend that this day never happened pick you, up your phone hey mom come pick me up yeah you fly home and you you <laughs> go to sleep for a week yeah those are the post office days and i had a lot of them i remember as passionate as I was about the art of charm, going by construction sites on some days and going, look at those guys, they're in the sun. They're going to be done in like three hours. 
When I exited grad school, I, I had an opportunity to go into investment banking or consulting. That's a lot of things that people who get MBAs typically go into. And, you know, the roles pay very, very well. You get flown all over the world. You're meeting with CEOs. You're doing all this great stuff, getting paid awesomely. And your pay has to increase dramatically over time because that's what the industry supports. Right. You know, and I decided to go into a, a startup and make, you know, less than a third of what I was offered from like an investment banking job. And I had to make a principal decision at that point. And I got to be honest with you, as tough as it is, as you know, you may not make as much money as if you're going to a company like that, it is completely and 100% worth it. And it led me to starting my own company and doing lots of other cool stuff that I never would have had access to. And, you know, I, I get a lot of people who are in undergraduate school or grad school, and they're trying to say, you know, well, do I go into a startup? Do I go into a big company? And one of the big things I tell them is that a good analogy for it is that the going into a startup is almost like CrossFit for professional life. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, CrossFit's fun, and I don't do CrossFit, and I'll say that like a full disclosure, because uh -huh. there's that joke, right? How you tell somebody who does CrossFit, they, don't worry, they'll yeah, tell they'll you. they'll tell you, yeah. But I don't do CrossFit, but CrossFit functions on like, fun it, it focuses on functional movement, right? Like nonlinear movement. So I could do bicep curls until like the, you know, cows come home, but then I get pushed in one weird direction and I pull a, a ligament because I'm only moving in this one linear direction. Right. CrossFit is very cross-functional. It's moving around in circles, all kinds of patterns. So you develop this ability in a startup to do tons of different things because you're pushed in every possible direction. I've done marketing. I've done sales. I've done management. I've done engineering coding work. I've done design work. I've done product management work, all kinds of things, because that was what the situation demanded. And I never would have had that flexibility at a bigger company. So startups are unique in that way, and you end up with more responsibility, but there's also an atmosphere of high ambiguity that I think a lot of people maybe are not suited to. It, oh, yeah. you know, it's always exciting to be like, I'm in marketing, and I'm in engineering, and I'm in sales, and I'm in design, yeah. but the ambiguity is what kills people. That's what oh, they yeah. don't see coming. That's, that's a great point. I mean, I've hired lots of people from bigger companies, and I tend to shy away from it now because they have difficulty dealing with things that are outside of their traditional role definition, right? Because mm -hmm. they're used to doing this one singular thing. And in a startup, you know, you may not have that, right? You have role ambiguity where you do lots of things, which can be very off-putting because you don't feel like you have a center. You don't feel you have a clear understanding of what you do. And you have to be comfortable with that. The other part of the ambiguity is not just role. It's that the company could be dead tomorrow. It's that we mm -hmm. could run out of money. The market could shift. Google could decide to do what we do already. And the company could be gone. So you have the ambiguity of not knowing what you're doing, the ambiguity of not knowing where the company is going to be in a month, a week, who knows. And, you know, I had a friend, uh, this guy who was a CTO of a company uh, that I was at years ago who said, you know, there's no sense in projecting past 12 months for a startup because in 13 months we'll all be dead anyway. <laughs> right. Okay. And that ambiguity is what most people can't stand. And I definitely understand that, especially if you have a lot of qualifications and you're looking back at your investment banking job and your friends there and you're going, look, I'm sure they're as stressed as I am, maybe not quite as stressed as I am, but their paycheck is going to be in the mail. I mean, their direct deposit cleared, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Mine might not. Yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, you, you have to embrace that. You know, I'll tell you, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. It's like basketball players want to be rappers and rappers want to be basketball players. It's like, right. You know, it's the same thing for investment banking. I mean, there's a lot of friends I have in investment banking who like have this principled mid-youth crisis and want to do a startup. And a lot of startup guys are like, you know, oh, why didn't I go into a stable career? So, you know, you're going to have that no matter where you go. The grass will always be greener. But at least in a startup, you are doing new things all the time, which I think is a very rare thing to find. Yeah, that's that's the upside. However, they're looking for unique types of people. And that's what we want to get into a little bit today is one, am I a fit for this? Two, how do I how do I get my foot in the door? Yeah. So you'd mentioned pre-show a really kind of funny, you know, the square peg analogy, but you used the word dodecahedron, which I <laughs> still, I Googled it and I'm not even sure I get it even now. Yeah, I think it's a 20-sided shape. But the point is, I mean, you know, startups are looking for a square peg to a square hole, but it's even more specific than that. It's like this, you know, multi-sided, very confusing 3D shape. It's got to fit into this like perfect hole because they feel like they have a very specific need, a very specific time. So, you know, we're a software company that optimizes healthcare purchasing for mid-sized companies, right? We need someone who's designed that exact thing before. Yeah. Otherwise, we can't make this work, right? Which is not true, right? I mean, chances are a talented designer or a product person could figure that type of problem out. 
But startups have this bias to look for someone very specific. So right. when you are approaching them about a job, you have to make them believe that the specific thing that's sitting in front of them, the only thing that they understand because this is their world right now is something that you can mm. do. And if they don't believe that, there's a very low chance you're going to get hired. By the way, for those of you who are being eaten alive by dodecahedron, it's 12-sided. Oh, 12-sided, sorry. Each side is a pentagon. <laughs> yeah, and it, but right. it does have 20 vertices, whatever that, that must have been actually it. means. Corners-ish. Okay, gotcha. There's 20 of those. There's there 12 go. sides. Has 30 edges. There we go. For those of you looking for a complete You know, I should know that. I'm Greek, and that's a Greek cognate. Both of guys is. are Greek, Greek for 12. I should know that. Yeah, they're looking for those types of people. And sometimes they, correct me where I'm wrong, they're not even sure what they're looking for, but they know it's going to be somebody who's a dodecahedron. And it's got a, right. Or like a multi. What's two <laughs> dodecahedrons yeah. in parallel universes, maybe? Like, can you engineer bio, something that can interact with the body, and you have to have a medical background and an engineering background. Also, do you know any web design? Because we're, we're lacking in that department, yeah. too. Yeah, and we can't seem to figure out how to make our healthcare system work, so we need you to buy healthcare. Right. And, no, I mean, and also, if you speak German, huge plus. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I would take it even a step further. It's not that they may not know what they're doing. It's that they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. Okay. Startups, I mean, that's that's another way to know that it's a startup is no one knows what they're doing. And some of them, many of them will delude themselves into believing that they're on this like straight and narrow path that has very specific inputs and outputs. But in an environment where things are changing as fast as they are, they have no idea what they're doing. So. Right. Therein lies the rub, right? In an environment of high ambiguity, a generalist or someone who can do a lot of things makes complete sense, but startups hire for very specific things. The reason this is important is because normal people from regular corporations can't always fit into that. We kind of touched on that earlier, why you don't look to necessarily hire those people. But a lot of times it's not that they're lesser beings for not being dodecahedrons. They're very good at what they're good at. It's just that startups need this crazy amalgamation of not only somebody who can do a bunch of different stuff, but is willing to do it for about a third of what they're actually worth. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Hence the passion angle. Yep, exactly. So let's talk about roles in startups because I think we just confused everyone because they go, look, I'm a marketing guy. I should work for a startup. And now they go, crap, I gotta be a marketing doctor, engineer, linguist. Yeah, yeah. So what startups are looking for at different points changes dramatically with what stage of the company they're at. So when things are very early, or as it's called a seed level, which is seed is kind of how you describe the, the funding stage that the company's at. Typically, that means they brought on like a round of capital, maybe from their family, maybe from a couple investors, but it's a pretty small amount of money, typically under a million dollars. At that point, what you have, especially in Silicon Valley, is a very small number of developers and a CEO, maybe a product person or a designer, but really a very lean team. You're probably looking at like less than 12 people, about 10 people or less. Then if that company is doing well and they're scaling, they're able to raise more money in something called a Series A or your first series of real financing after seed. And it goes Series A, B, C, D all the way down mm -hmm. for every successive round of funding you take. So after seed, you go into Series A, maybe you raise another bit of money out here, you know, one to three million dollars is a very common range for that. Then the company has got a little bit of money. Then they can hire actual positions. So you have more developers they're probably bringing on. Uh, a product person, if they don't already have one already, or the CEO isn't the product person, which also happens very frequently, they'll be hiring some designers, maybe one marketing person or social media person or copywriter to start getting things together. But it's still a very lean team at that point. If the Series A is much bigger, like let's say they raise five to $10 million, they could be bringing on a lot of other people, which also happens at a Series B. So let's say we have C, then Series A, then Series B, I've raised even more money now. That's when a company starts taking on business development people or um, people who manage partnerships with large companies, marketing team, sales, all kinds of other higher company functions typically happen later. Um, so the more the, the more money the company has, the more they're willing to kind of flesh that staff out and the more opportunities there would be for you as, a, as someone coming in. And that's why getting in early, you typically get paid in equity because they don't have any juice. They don't have any money to give you. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. The later stage the company is, the more money they've raised, the more they're able to compensate employees with actual cash as opposed to equity because they need to. Also, later employees tend to get options as opposed to actual equity grants. So it's an option to purchase equity at a very low rate. One thing to kind of mention that is really important is when you're looking at different startups, how do you know whether or not they have a high likelihood of success or mm -hmm. not? And some of it is you just may be really passionate about the product, and that's what the startup is going to want to hear. But there's other telltale signs that a startup is likely to succeed. One is 
they have founders who have a successful exit or a successful company before. Okay. Meaning they've started a company, they've raised capital for it, or they've raised money from a venture capitalist or investors. They've built, they've launched the product, it did well, maybe they sold it, maybe it IPO'd, whatever. That past level of success is a much higher indicator that they do things possibly in the future. So a lot of venture capitalists use that. The other is just really understanding the team. So at a startup, you are going to be bleeding in the trenches with people day and day out, right? You'll be working very long hours. So you really have to like the team. In a corporation, like let's say I went to go work for Google or LinkedIn or Apple, if I didn't like the team I was working with, I could move to a different team inside the company, right? right? right. I could move around. And your house here is right next to Apple, right? I have friends at Apple who've done this. But if you work at a startup, there isn't a different department for you to go to. So if you don't like the people that you're working with, and I mean really like them, it's going to be a pretty miserable job. Yeah. So make sure the company has executives or founders that know what they're doing, that have likely done it before, or you have to believe in the product tremendously to the point where you're like a religious zealot for it to compensate for people who don't know what they're doing, or you just love them to death. Right. Yeah. Right. Like family, like mafia, family, family business. Exactly. Yeah. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, back to Alex Coots. So how do we start to even look for a role if we don't, because obviously you don't necessarily know where you fit in if you never worked for a startup. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a couple different roles that startups typically have, and we've referenced them already. A developer is someone who's basically making code, right? So a front-end web developer, someone that works with HTML, CSS, maybe a couple other front-end frameworks, JavaScript frameworks like Angular, Ember, something like that. Then there's back-end engineers as well that work with kind of Java-based things. You know, they'll do more 
back-end work, but then there's all the way over to the non-technical sides. There's uh, you know, the product manager, which is a very typical entry for someone who's in a more general business role. The product manager is someone who is responsible for owning the what and the why, right? The what we're going to build and the why we're going to build it. Mm -hmm. So somebody that understands how to look at the market and say, this is where it's moving. This is what people want. This is what we're going to build. Then managing through the process where that is designed and then giving that to the development team and helping them break it down and then making sure that it's done after they've kind of built it. So that's kind of the business side of it. And they call product managers mini CEOs. Uh, and actually, I think only product managers refer to themselves as that. But <laughs> yes, that's maybe. Basically, what right. it is, and that's what I do, or what I've done for most of my career, uh, product management. The other side is designers. So, if you work in a software-based startup, there's people who do user experience design. So, all the pretty pixels that you see when you're using Gmail on your phone or Facebook, those were designed by somebody. That's a designer typically. Um, you know, there's also obviously marketing people. Marketing in early stage startups, specifically for software, tends to be more community focused. People who are very good with Facebook or Twitter mm -hmm. or generating or building an audience. Someone who can architect a very authentic voice, typically. Um, and this is, again, generalizations, but it's, it's something you see quite frequently. So how do we get jobs at startups? Hence the title of the, the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways. Uh, there's a lot of ways to go into it. But you know, I'll preface this by saying something that we've talked about before, I think, in some of the other shows, which is that the biggest lie that we've all ever been told in our lives is that we need permission to do a job. And in one of the previous shows, I called out an example of a guy named Tristan Walker who got a job at Foursquare by effectively being unre just unrelenting and constantly going back and actually started doing the business development job that he wanted before the company even hired him. <laughs> started getting letters of intent of brands to kind of bring um, to advertise on Foursquare before he worked at the company. And then when he went to Foursquare, said, hey, look at these letters of intents from brands that I've worked with. You know, they're willing to advertise on Foursquare. Give me a job. And I do that all the time. I will write what I call love letters to founders. So companies that I really like are products that I use on a regular basis. I will write a letter saying all the things that I love about the product, and I'll just send it off to their team for no reason other than to let them know that I really like it. And it's actually just a nice thing for them to hear, right? And sometimes it generates a conversation um, but another way to take that a step further is actually do the job before you get it, just like we were saying with Tristan Walker. So for product, if you want to be a product manager, do a competitive analysis of the product. So let's say there is an email application that I really like. So maybe I go into the market and I look at 15 different email applications, and I become a bit of an expert on it in a pretty short period of time. You can do it in a day or less. Really understand them, see what they're doing well relative to the company that you're focusing on, and then send them a deck. Send them a deck saying, you know, I'm a really passionate user of your product, like a 10-slide deck. You know, I love it. I use it every day. I'm very passionate about the space. I've looked at all of your major competitors. This is what I think they do really well. This is what I think you do really well. And here are some strategic opportunities for things that I think you could do better that could help your business. I'm going to get a 1,000 slide decks yeah. <laughs> this month. Well, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. That's free work. For it, it is, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And as someone myself, like I'm a VP of product at a startup, if someone were to reach out to me and say, hey, I'd love to get a meeting, it's a very low likelihood that as busy as I am, I'm just going to give them a meeting out of the goodness of my heart because right. even though I may like to help people and do favors, I just don't have the time. No. But if you send me something and said, hey, I'm super passionate and I did this work and this is relevant to you, take a look. And if you want a meeting, great. If not, no pressure. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a meeting with that person because I'm just impressed with what they did. I don't see that very often. And I've done that myself multiple times just because I love certain companies and it always ends up in a meeting, many times ends up in a job offer and you know, I teach product management here in San Francisco, and I counsel all my students to do that. And the conversion rate or the kind of the interest rate or email back rate or something like that is dramatically higher than anything else that I've seen. Really? Really? So this gets a massive response versus pretty much anything else that you've uh, – any other stunts that you've pulled per se? Yeah. I mean, and especially in a startup it works, right? Because they're cash and resource strapped. So somebody doing something for them that could help them out potentially is a dramatic value add in a situation which they probably really need it. A big company like Coke may not respond as well to something like that because they have a million people doing a million things. Sure, and nobody will even know where to send your slide deck, even if you did. Exactly. I mean, think about it on the flip side. Think of how rude it is of any other situation in life to go up and ask somebody for something without providing anything in return, somebody that you don't know. Right. Basically, you're asking for charity at that point. You're mining social equity to try and get a meeting. In a situation where if I provide something of value, actual value, not some trick in an email that makes me seem really important, but some actual value based on my passion. That's just such a game changer. Yeah, of course. And most people will never spend the time to do that. Exactly. They'll never do that. So that'll automatically separate you from the crowd. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so if how, there is a crowd. Exactly. So the question is, how bad do you want it, right? If you want it bad enough to do some work and show them that you're passionate, enthusiastic, and smart, you will go far. Most people submit their resume online. We've talked a little bit about that. What's the response rate in your estimation for submitting a resume online? Yeah, so, so you know how I feel about this. I, I generally feel that submitting a resume online is the same thing as throwing it away. If I get a response back from an email that I were to, from a resume I were to submit on a website, I would be shocked. I just assume that it doesn't really work. And I had a friend who worked in a, in a very uh, successful investment bank in New York, and they were getting something like three to 4,000 resumes a week after the financial meltdown happened. And the HR department like, couldn't even figure out like, how to go through all these resumes. Right. So they started only looking at ones that came in on a Tuesday. They were like, you know what? We have no real way, no effective way of like, screening all these things. So I'm just going to look at ones that come in on a Tuesday. I'm going to throw the rest in the garbage. With a lot of companies that get a lot of applications, like some of the fast-rising startups, similar types of things happen. You would be shocked. You'd like to think that every email gets care, but it doesn't. So I would say developing a personal connection, displaying value, and providing something that is important and nice to have is way better than just sending an email online or putting your resume on a website. It's just not going to work, and I don't think you assume it, assume it would. I looked at a study. I can't remember who did this. It was maybe even an HR company, and 80% of jobs were found through networking and connecting with others, previously existing connections. And I've, I've mentioned this in other episodes of Art of Charm, and the approximate percentage of people getting jobs through in, across every job in America, air quotes, because they can, obviously didn't really measure that. Yeah. The online response was like t sub 10%. Oh my God. Which yeah. is insane, because that's even for like staffing agencies that say, look, submit your resume online, and that's how they get resumes. Yeah. They're looking for those, and it's still sub 10%. So if you extrapolate that data and you look at, all right, great, so I'm in the lowest... 10% most likely, and then you look, if you were to take an accurate measure of startups hiring and things like that, it's probably zero, yep. like you said, it's zero. Because we're factoring in things that are completely unclear, like here's how you get a job at Chipotle. Oh, go to chipotle.com slash jobs and apply online. That's how a lot of people get that job. Yeah, people also just generally, and I, I do a lot of user experience design, so I've seen this in practice, but people are trying to reduce cognitive drag. Everybody in the world is trying to do this. and. Cognitive drag is basically the amount of mental processes it takes me to run through something to accomplish a specific task, right? So a lower cognitive drag, it's an easier thing. Higher cognitive drag, it's a harder thing. And in job searching and in reviewing job applications, it's the same thing. So when a HR rep or somebody is looking over your resume or someone is trying to evaluate you, they are using something called trusted proxies to kind of reduce their cognitive drag for understanding who you are. Now, one of those may be saying you went to an Ivy League school. Another may be working, you know, this is a company that you've worked at before that has a great name or a great brand. It must be hard to get into. They want to see that, right? They right. want to see something that makes it easier for them to judge you in a world where there's so many factors, they have no idea who you are. And the way that that company did was just say, look, reduce cognitive drag. Tuesday applicants, you're in. Yeah, for them, absolutely, right? I can't even go through all these things, so I'm just going to do the easiest thing possible, cut everything out that doesn't come in on a Tuesday. So I think... There's something there, and I think you have to kind of realize that, that when someone else is looking at you, they're looking for ways to judge you very quickly, knowing probably what they know, not taking for credit what you say, right? So, so when you kind of craft that initial email by presenting value, by saying, hey, you know, I work at such and such company, I do this, and I was really passionate about your company, I did this, those are all things that help them understand who you are. And furthermore, proving your earlier point... If you're applying for a job that has 4,000 resumes, imagine what an introduction does. They go, great, we got to fill 10 jobs, and you know Alex, and he already works here, and says you're a fit? Good. Oh, yeah. We'll look at you for this job, and now we only have nine more people to fill out of these 8,000 per day oh, yeah. I resumes. Mean, yeah, coming through referral is, is one of the best ways to do it, and everybody knows this, right? But one of the reasons behind it is something called social proofing which is this basic sociological concept that like people look for validation of whether or not something is good through other people. And there's five major kinds of social proof that are used. And if you Google five types of social proof, there's an article that pops up, I think, on TechCrunch that explains them. But, you know, that's a massive way to get in the door, right, and display your value and make people understand that, okay, this is someone I can talk to, right? They're a trusted person. If we don't have a referral, how do we even, how do we get these sit-down meetings with people? Uh, you use LinkedIn, we mentioned before. Yeah. How do you do that? So one of the things I'm a big fan of is just reaching out to random people on LinkedIn with, um, that have some type of connection to me that is a reasonable precedent for them wanting to talk to me. So 
for instance, let's say I work at, you know, a software development company that does, you know, X type of goods, right? Mm -hmm. I bet there's a million competitors that work in the space. And one thing I do when I'm at companies is I will reach out to everyone that is a competitor and someone that is in my similar role at a competitive company and say, hey, you know, my name's Alex, you know, I do such and such at such company. I think we have a similar job. Love to get together and talk about what you work on. I think it's always good to meet cool people doing cool things in the space. Let's grab a coffee sometime. Very low pressure, very basic, but it's building my network before I make a move, before I actually want to leave. So that for me has ended up in job offers before because, you know, that company is looking to fill a role. Well, they know someone who's done that exact job at another company, right? So that's one good way to kind of grease the wheels and kind of use LinkedIn to your, to your benefit before you even leave your company. Now, the other is I started a company in civic tech, uh, which is getting people more engaged with their government. And so I started reaching out to everybody that I could possibly find. I made a list of like 200 people long and found everybody on LinkedIn or found their email address through whatever means I possibly could and sent out one basic, quick, light, non-pressure, generic email saying, you know, hey, I'd love to grab coffee and talk about what you're doing. I think it's a really cool space. I've done such and such. Let's figure out works. So like, let's get a time. And it's amazing how often people do that when I'm not asking for anything. Like if I'm like, hey, I'm looking for a job. I'd love to have a meeting. No that's way. A very, it's a very high pressure request, yeah. right? It's like, I, I don't know this person. I don't want them to sit there and pitch me and give them their resume and me feel bad about it. I don't want to do that. And, well, the other thing is if you don't hire them, you're sitting in front of them. Exactly. It's weird. It's right? just high pressure, right? Yeah. It's like it's like going – it's the same thing with a date. I mean all this stuff is is recurring theme in every like interaction we have with people. But you know, if I'm sitting in front of a girl and I'm like, you know what? I think I want to get married. Like, what do you think about that? How do you feel about kids, right? On the first date. Yeah. She's going to run away. Like, even if she's thinking about those things, it's a little aggressive. It's, yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe pump the brakes a little bit. Slow play it. Establish a relationship. Then figure out if there's an opportunity there. Don't assume that there is one and reach out immediately as though there is one. Excellent. And so these email guidelines, generally, they're short. They're simple. How do we conduct ourselves in here? Because at the end of the day, we kind of are looking for a job a lot of the time, right? Well, you are and you aren't, right? I mean, every first interview is an interview for both parties, mm -hmm. right? So I want to figure out if this is a company that I want to work at. They want to figure out if I'm someone that would be good for the role. So I think it's always good to start off with some very basic meeting. So typically the elements are kind of a basic greeting. Hi, my name's Alex. How are you doing? And then I display some social proof. So we talked before about reducing cognitive drag by using trusted proxies, right? So I'll drop a name, a company that I work at, or a friend of mine if they know that person. All these are ways for us to kind of generate some social proofing, right? So I do brief greeting, some element of social proofing, then saying, hey, you know, I'm going to be around like in your area. I'd love to grab a coffee. I'm making it as low pressure and as low noncommittal and as noncommittal as possible. And I'm just displaying that I'm enthusiastic, I'm nice, and I'm interested, right? And past that, just establishing a relationship can be enough. And it's amazing how often people will take you up on that type of thing. So basically not giving the resume, but being opting more for being interesting. Yeah. And and like you said before, being a little bit cool cuz look, if you're going to join the startup team, mm -hmm. I got to like you. That's more important than whether or not you can even do the job for the person who's hiring you unless they're the CEO and have equity. Yeah, I mean, you touched on a really good point there of not sending the resume. I mean, I recommend very strongly that people don't send a resume on a first email intro because I think it's a mistake. It's like you know, texting a girl for the first time and sending your headshot, right? Like, no, maybe like, you know, go back and forth a little bit. I think guys wish that that would happen to them, but I think yeah. women are like, ugh, I hate when that happens. Yeah, maybe not a headshot in this day, maybe. Yeah. Different type of shot. Different but, type of shot. Right, exactly. But no, I mean, I think a resume is something that should only be given when requested. Same with business cards. If I'm at a networking event, I'm not wallpapering the room with my business card. Mm -hmm. I'm only giving it if someone specifically requests it. So resume should basically be done the same. If I'm pushing the resume... That also displays that I need you more than you need me. I need you to see this. I want you to look at this. As opposed to if you ask me, it's a much more, it's a much different power dynamic, right? So you want to generate a situation where there's enough interest for them to ask you for a resume, being passionate, displaying value, displaying that social proof, maybe offering them something first like that deck that we talked about is a much better way to get into that. It's a litmus test then, because if they ask for your contact, your resume, it shows, look, you, you've succeeded up into that point most likely. Exactly. Unless it's them going, yeah, 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 send me your resume, because they're hungry and they want to leave. Yeah. Right? So I guess maybe it's not a good litmus test. Maybe I should just strike that from the record. But I think if you're doing this right, they will actually ask for the, what they would need to pass upward and or make the decision properly. Absolutely. I, I don't know what it is, but you're right. Whenever somebody sends me their resume in the first email, I usually just archive the email. Yeah. Or I even just say, you know, thank you, you know, 
but I, I don't look at the resume. I, I never would look at the resume. There's no reason for me to open it. It's too much, right? Yeah. And it, it also kind of reeks of desperation in a lot of cases. Yeah. Unless there's like a very strong precedent for it. So, yeah, I mean, I would say you definitely want to slow play that kind of stuff. You want to make it appear as though, you know, what you have is valuable. And quite frankly, I'm not just going to give you my resume right off the bat because you have to ask me for it. Yeah, right? I normally don't want to throw people under the bus, but I got this email earlier today or maybe it was yesterday. The days all blur together sometimes. This person wrote, they, first of all, they sent the email to info at theartofcharm.com. Not to me, which I, my, I give my email on every show. And if I didn't, you should definitely be able to guess what it is. <laughs> uh, everyone has it. Everybody who's been on the show has it. Everybody who's come into contact with me and knows me personally would have this and knows that they can give it away. Oh. Right? Uh, they, so they wrote it to info at the Art of Charm, and they went on to explain about how good they would be at working here and how they have expertise networking at the elite level. Bear in mind... Cold email, not a referral, sent to our general inbox. Yeah, that's a little rough. Not quite what I expect from somebody who is used to networking at the elite level. And, and I'm not just saying this to trash this random dude who's going to remain nameless because I archived it instantly. But the fact is we do this a lot by sending in resumes or let me know some good times that would be great to talk about my future employment with the Art of Charm. That kind of th Nothing like that ever works. This weird sort of not walking the walk type of thing is really, really obvious, especially if you're going to make a bold claim like, look, I'm an expert UX developer and it's like sent from my whatever and that's like there's spelling errors in there. I'm very detail oriented and there's yeah. like typos in the email. They get the name wrong. Yeah. That kind of thing happens all the time. But if someone reached out to and they're like, you know what? Hey, Jordan, I've been listening to your show for a long time. I'm a big fan of podcasts. And I looked at, you know, 15 podcasts or 20 podcasts in your bracket and they do this on social media. They do this over here. I think it'd be really good if you do this. That kind of makes sense as a recommendation. Would that be different for you? Would that Yeah, resonate? sure. Because I would as long as they weren't like, let me come over to your house tomorrow night and show you how to do this. I, I would probably say, look. If you can detail this for me, I'll send it to our team, and I, I'd be very thankful for that. And if they did something like that, and then a couple months later they did something similar with some other angle, and then they said, by the way, uh, would you mind if I showed you, look, I'm a freelance such and such, Can I send? would you humor me on this? I would absolutely, Yeah. because they've already provided value and proven that they can do something of value. Absolutely. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's an old-fashioned notion of – courtesy, quite frankly, and just mm -hmm. understanding where the other person is coming from, being empathetic to their case, and not throwing a request at them that they're less likely to be able to deal with or want to deal with. That's just not courteous. It's just not empathetic. So be empathetic. Think about what the other side needs. Think about how you may be able to provide value and then give it to them and make sure they know who you are when you do it. What about actually asking for meetings, speaking of that subject? Because there is an element of, you have to do that at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one of the tough parts about asking for meetings, especially maybe in another city from where you live, is mm -hmm. that you don't want to make it look too desperate. You don't want to make it look like a scary meeting for the person. Right. You I'll want fly to. out there whenever you want. Exactly. You never want to say something like that. Right. right. You want to decrease the emotional cost for that person taking that meeting as much as possible. So well, a couple of things that I do is, you know, I'll say, okay, you know, I want to, you know, hey, my name is Alex so-and-so. And maybe I'll start off with like that kind of value add, like, hey, I did this thing. I'm a really passionate user. Here you go. And I will say something like, you know, I'll be in your area the week of X. And I used to do this all the time when I was a business development guy. And I would say like, hey, I'm going to be in New York like the, you know, late October, you know, first week of October. Let me know if you're free for a coffee. Right. And if they said yes, then I would book my ticket to go there. Right. But I would always phrase it as, hey, I'm going to be there. And when they said yes, I booked the ticket because if I tell them, hey, I'm going to fly to New York because I'd love to grab a coffee with you. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't book an airline ticket to have some crappy Starbucks yeah. dark roast. I have a girlfriend. Me. This is creepy. I, yeah. don't, I don't have time for this. So it's, it's just it's a little too much. So I typically say like you want to give someone a date range that's broad. It's not too broad because if it's too broad, it displays that you're not a demand, right? If it's like, can you meet anytime between like October you know, 15th and then like November 35th, like, you know, 2035, right? Like <laughs> yeah. that's it gives someone like way too much time. So you want to be. A little bit, a little bit specific, but not too specific. Because if you're too specific on those side, then you know asking someone else to deal with the imposition of accommodating a specific time for you is a weird request. So saying like, "Hey, next Thursday at three o'clock, are you free?" If I don't know you, like. 
that's kind of specific and a little bit weird. I'd say, hey, you know, late next week, I'm going to be around. You know, would you be free to grab a coffee? Love to talk. Sure. Yeah. Especially if it's like, look, I'm going to be in town for I get this occasionally. Look, I'm going to be in San Jose. My friend Jeff actually just did this and he wasn't my friend before this. Really, we just kind of knew each of each other. He goes, look, I'm going to be at this Brennan Bouchard event in your area. Do you want to have dinner? on Thursday or something like, or a drink, yeah. you know, on Thursday evening after it's all over, not sure on the time. That's pretty cool. Cause then I can just be like, I can either be free that night or not. But yeah, yeah had he been like, are you around at seven fifteen PM in yeah. this particular neighborhood? It, that's, that's unusual. And I think that there is definitely a balance between being too specific and not specific enough Yep. because if you're too flexible, you're not in demand. Like you said, if on the other hand, you're very specific, I understand sometimes there's a reason for that, but usually what I assume when people do it, because I've seen it a million times, is this weird false scarcity. Yeah. And uh, other terrible pitches, or I guess you can call it that, that I've gotten are, hi, I have a great opportunity. For, it almost sounds like a spam email. <laughs> I have a great opportunity. I'm really good at, like going back to this guy, I'm really experienced at the elite networking level, but then they'll combine that, and this guy didn't do that, but they'll combine it with something like, get back to me by Friday or I'm going to go to this other company. And I'm yeah. like, go ahead, go to the other company. I don't know you. You haven't made your case for value here. Yeah. You're asking me for my time. Now you're going to strong arm me to chase after you. I, I don't want to operate like that. If I hire you, you're going to treat me like that. Hell no. I don't yeah. want to deal with that at all. And that's the ridiculous part of it is that people think because you're in a professional environment, you have to act dramatically different than you would in person. Right. Like that's never something that you would do to somebody that you're friends with, right? Yeah. Hey, Alex, do you want to hang out after our interview? And you know what? You better let me know in 15 minutes because if you don't text back, I'm going to interview somebody else. That's right. Yeah. I'm just going to make another friend. Yeah. I'm going to go on Tinder and just yeah. make friends. I'm just going to right swipe all day. Yeah, exactly. you're, you're out of luck, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you wouldn't do that in real life. So, I mean, ask yourself, you know, if I'm on the other side of the table and it's not in a professional context, is what I'm doing courteous? Does it make sense? Would I respond to it positively if someone did it to me? You would be amazed how infrequently people put themselves in someone else's shoes. So empathy is a huge part of it. And again, I'm displaying as much value as I can and decreasing the emotional cost of taking that meeting or offering that meeting as much as possible. And then that's a winning combination. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Now, back to Alex Coots. One of the hardest parts about changing careers is putting yourself out there and taking that risk of rejection. How do we do that in in, a, in an efficient way, first of all, mm -hmm. and also kind of getting over the hump? Because there's the whole just do it, just put yourself out there type of non-advice that this whole show has been created to not engage in. So I'm, I'm hoping we can 
disassemble that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm from the East Coast, uh, and in the East Coast, we're we're a miserable people from the East Coast. And right. You know this living in New York, I do. right? We yeah. We have sideburns. We wear suits all the time. We look very angry when we walk on the street. We generally don't trust people. And then I moved out to California, where everybody is open and flowing right. with all their ideas. And you know, I wanted to start a company that was on the East Coast before I moved to Silicon Valley. And one of my things was never share the idea with anyone else because they will steal it. Right. And I always had this feeling and it took a long time to shake it. But the truth is what I found over time is that there's no way that you can recruit people to helping you build your dreams, recruit them to get on your side if you don't share the information with them. Yeah. And also execution. People are lazy. They're not going to, st- what are they going to do with your idea? Exactly. Tell other people they had the idea. Yep. That's it. You know, Facebook wasn't the first Facebook. It doesn't matter. They just executed better than Friendster and MySpace and other Man. crap that was out there. And to the point where, like, MySpace became only for, you know, first, right? That's the only reason <laughs> yeah. I would use pedophiles and bands. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, one of the key takeaways there is that, you know, putting yourself out there in the ether, like putting your consciousness out, broadcasting it out there and becoming an expert or becoming a credible source on something is a lot easier than you think. And, you know, I had a friend out here who was had a very entry-level job with a startup, and she basically started blogging really aggressively about business development. And she didn't really have any experience in it, and she really wanted to get into it. But she became this, like, internet authority by just constantly writing on it. And a lot of the time, she was just referencing what other people said or, you know, adding her commentary to it, and she developed her voice. And as a result of that blog, it started gaining traffic over time. She got a position at as one of the first business development hires at a company now worth over a billion dollars. And... That was all because she kept putting her mind out there mm-hmm. and wasn't afraid to share her points of view on things and became really an authority on the subject. And anybody can do that. You do not have to be a genius to do that. You can just kind of put your stuff out there. And early on when you're starting, it will be crappy, right? It will not be great value stuff. Right. It may not be super insightful. It may not be genius. But over time, the more you see puts you in a category that's different from other people. I read 40 blogs a day. Jeez. 40 blogs. Yeah. <laughs> Every morning I wake Get up and life. I go through them. It takes me like less than a half an hour, but I'll skim through all of them and read uh, articles that are interesting and I'll add the rest to like my queue of things to read. But it makes me very knowledgeable about the area that I'm very focused on. It's very hard to surprise me when you're talking about something that I'm passionate about. Because you've, I'm you've seen the predictions a mile away or made them yourself. Yep. I'm right. participating in the community. I'm, I'm out there. I mean, Talking about things that you, you, you're passionate about is the best way to pe- for people to know that you have something to say, right? Just talking about it is the best way for people to know you have something to say. Welcome so, to my entire business Exactly. Model. You talk quite a bit and it I works, do. right? I mean, you're, you're getting yourself out there. So I would say if you're passionate about an area, even if you don't work in it, start creating content. Start developing opinions and get it out there. Twitter is a great place to start. Medium or Blogger or some other blogging site or Tumblr or whatever get your mind out there and start accumulating followers. And, you know, I have one friend who's been doing this for a very long time now. He's been writing for years. And he slowly moved into a venture capital role from coming from a startup, which is something he didn't originally intend to do. But his writing has given him deal flow, meaning startups that want to find advisors, that want to find investors, reach out to him. And he's not doing either of those things. But because he talks so much, because he has interesting things to say, people jump on the bandwagon. So I would say it's something that starts slow and it grows. And all the people that I know, every entrepreneur, everyone that has been successful in this business out here has not done it without believing that something inside them is superior to circumstance. And you have to do that. So get your stuff out there, write stuff. Even if it's not good, it will get better over time and people will find you. We outline a lot of this in the social capital course that we have where we, we go over thought leadership. We even have, well, you do your master class in there. We even have other experts like Dory Clark who talk pretty specifically about this exact process because that's what she does too. And and that's what we've, anybody who's been on there, anybody who's been on this show, essentially, aside from the random storied people that we find, have done that. Yeah, They just went, so I started looking for this thing and I realized it wasn't there and I started to have opinions on this thing and I started to put them on a blog or on social media and dot, 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 people yep. found it and then they found themselves randomly being the expert on duck hunting in Alaska yeah. or whatever. How is someone going to find you if you're not trying to be found? Mm-hmm. So get your stuff out there. It always makes a lot of sense. I want to wrap with this because I think a lot of people are going to ask or they're going to go, why didn't you ask them how to nail the interview? Yeah. And we discussed this pre-show and the reason we're not really going to get into that is because there's a lot of crap out there already that kind of does a good job on it. But uh, you did have an interesting twist on 
the interview that might not be out there because there's a lot of bad interview advice out there, kind of like, what are your greatest weaknesses? Oh, I'm too hard of a worker and I'm too smart. Yeah, I mean, so one of the questions that you get a lot of the time, uh, and I had one interview uh, not too long ago, a couple years ago, that, or I guess a year and a half ago, that asked me basically, uh, you know, give us your best professional success. Like, what was the time when you were very successful? And I think it's actually quite nice and, and a humble response to say, you know what, that, that's, there's a lot of things I've done well, like that, you know, did well, but I'd like to talk to you about the time that I failed the most and kind of frame it in a way that, you know, I failed, I made this huge glaring mistake, this is where I screwed up and I learned these things from it that I will never do again is a much more credible way than to say, oh, I just know how to do this thing really well, right? right. So one of the examples I gave is, you know, we built a piece of software for a company I worked at years ago, the first uh, software-based job I ever had, uh, I was a product manager there as well. And we built this application, worked eight months on this app, and I knew the entire time no one was going to use it because <laughs> it was a desktop PC downloadable application, which unless you're in gaming, like people don't really buy anymore right. unless you're a very small number of companies. And it was like chock full of ads and all this horrible stuff. And now I basically went along with it because I was told by my manager that it was something we needed to do. But at the end of the day, we built this product that nobody wanted. And I learned all these things that I will never do again from it. And it's created these phobias for me that, like, I never want to release a product that I haven't validated all the underlying assumptions for before I design it and build it. Right. Which is how you get the whole lean startup methodology that's very popular out here, which is a great book to check out, Lean Startup. We'll link that in the show notes. By Eric Ries. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's required reading if you work in startups. But that's a very, very humble way to go about it and say, like, I screwed up so bad. And you know what? I'm never going to do it again because it burned it into my consciousness. Excellent. So talking about failures might actually be a way to showcase strengths because you show the process. Right. Not just claiming, look, I got this on lock. Because yeah. we know that when we're hiring somebody at a junior, especially at a junior level, look, you don't do everything perfectly. And you, yeah. you haven't always done that. And we want to know how you learned it, because if we can see how the sausage is made, we know what's inside it. Exactly. And, and I'm not recommending you go into an interview and like every question they ask you is, you know, yeah, what's your what's your policy on or, or how much vacation time do you need? Well, let me tell you about a time I failed with vacation. Yeah. When I took too much and got fired. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So don't don't go in and say everything in, in the reference of, or frame of a failure. But I think it's a very interesting thing to use sparingly and at very poignant points. Excellent. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you deliver? Uh, so another huge thing that I, that I recommend people do, especially if you're trying to transition from one career to another, is do stuff for free. So I know that's difficult if you have a family and you need a full-time job and you just don't have the time to do it. That right. totally makes sense. But for people getting into startups, maybe you have the bandwidth to do it. Maybe you have – maybe you watch too much TV and you can fill that time with something better. You know, do things out of the goodness of your heart and good things honestly come back to you. I mean these shows are great examples. So mm -hmm. Met Jordan. Jordan's a friend of mine. Had a show – you know, a while ago about negotiation. And I teach negotiation in the city. And I basically just did the show because, you know, it was fun and Jordan's a nice guy and I didn't really have any expectation of return from it. And then as a result later on for my classes, now they're like chock full of people wanting to learn negotiations that have heard it from the show. So nice. I would say when you do things for free without always an expectation of return, really good things come back to you. So you couldn't have planned that. You no. wouldn't have been like, look, if I show up to the Art of Charm, people who are local to me are going to sign up for my class. And it's, quite frankly, yeah. at the time which I did the show, I wasn't even teaching the class yet. Right. I ended up teaching it afterwards because I got all these people reaching out to me asking me if I had like a book or a podcast or something. And I was like, no, I, Not really. I guess I could do a class. And then that went into a thing where now I've taught hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, you know, negotiations. And I've negotiated for people and become very good at it and an authority on it. Awesome. It all started with doing something for free and, and being passionate about it. Basically, we made you a local celebrity. No big deal. Uh, well, you know, I don't want to. My mom's watching, so yes. She's watching Mama, us. I made She's it. watching us talk on a, yeah. an audio tape. She's watching the slider go on the <laughs> on her iPod 3G. Right. Brilliant as usual. Really good stuff. I'm waiting for the day when I ask you to do a show and you go, <laughs> I got to draw the line. Right. But until that happens, thanks so much, man. This has been awesome. Absolutely. Anytime. Super interesting episode as usual. Alex is a superstar. I'm waiting for him one day to say, Look, man, I've done five podcasts. I'm not coming back. But until that day happens, we're going to keep bugging him and picking his brain because he's got a lot of good stuff in there. Good friend of mine, really, really sharp guy, as you guys can see. And, of course, if you're interested in what he has to say on any subject, I highly suggest looking in the show notes. We're going to link up some of Alex's other episodes here as well because there's a lot of good stuff from negotiation to public speaking aside from getting hired at a startup here.
Show feedback and guest suggestions. This show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know. Guests at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Alex on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as all the other resources and a couple of other episodes with Alex that we mentioned on the show. You can tap the album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I also post a lot on Twitter that never makes it to the show. Articles, insights, and other crap. I am at the art of charm on twitter bootcamp live program details bootcamp.theartofcharm.com remember we're sold out a few months in advance so if you're thinking about it a little bit get in touch asap get some info from us and plan ahead subscribe in itunes review us we will love you forever helps us outrank the competition and helps us recover from some of these yahoos that write us one star reviews like for virtually no reason basically because they don't like my voice or they think the guest is lying somehow. I don't know who these people are, but five-star reviews help us counterbalance the crazies like that. So, of course, it makes us feel proud as well, and it's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.